Washington, D.C. is my home away from home. I've worked here for the better part of three decades as a founder entrepreneur, policy expert, and author. Probably the longest title. Um, everybody sort of shortened it to ONC for sanity's Mercif sake. Mercifully. Yeah, mercifully. I've learned leadership secrets from many healthcare executives who understand that Washington is the largest payer and regulator of healthcare. She said, well, because you'll never get a husband if you do that. <laughs> I began interviewing healthcare leaders many years ago because what better way to learn how they think, why they make it to the top, and how they remain there. Think about what was your most challenging engagement? Healthcare has been the most difficult problem. <laughs> Let me just say that. We'll talk about that yeah. later. From a young age, Dr. Tevi Troy saw America as a beacon of hope in the world and pursued policy as a way to make things even better. We discussed Tevi's career in government as a member of President George Bush's transition team, a deputy secretary in HHS, and acting assistant to the president for domestic policy. A prolific writer with four books and over 300 articles, Tevi shared his inspiration for writing. He believes that writing is a powerful tool to influence policy and public perceptions, as well as make a name for yourself in the political arena. Tevi's books analyze presidencies. He shared humorous anecdotes of past presidents to showcase the power of stories. We covered how crises such as COVID-19 impact presidential legacies as described in one of his books, Shall We Wake the President? and touched on his most recent book, Fight House, about rivalries in presidential administrations. Tevi's advice for young leaders is to read not just read for the sake of it, but to incorporate the concepts and skills into your leadership style. Well, good afternoon, Tevi, and welcome. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you, Gary. We're pleased to have you at this microphone, and you've certainly been a leader in your background, Tevi, being Deputy Secretary at HHS and Acting Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy, as well as your writings, which have been about presidents and leadership. So we're eager to spend a few moments with you today. Why don't we look at your early years and just see if we can figure out how you've developed your interests what was life like growing up for you, Tevi? Well, I grew up in Queens, New York in the 1970s, which, as now, was a challenging period for the United States. There was a lot of depressing attitudes and people felt that things weren't going well in the country and we were having some foreign policy challenges and the economy was shaky. So I looked around and I said, wow, you know, there seems to be so much negativity, whereas I had such a positive feeling about the United States and the fact that it was a haven all of my relatives had come from Europe. If they had stayed in Europe, they would have died. So I just saw America as a beacon of light and hope. And I wanted to see if there was a way we could make things better. And I kind of seized on policy as a way to perhaps make that happen. What did the young Tevi think about leadership? Oh, I don't know. I, uh, I was big into sports and I was interested in the leadership styles of various coaches. Billy Martin was uh, frequently the manager of the Yankees and then not the manager of the Yankees and then manager of the Yankees again. But he had an interesting leadership style because he was inspirational. And for the first year, whenever he came to a team, that team would improve. It happened so many times, it's just not statistical anomaly. Now, over time, I guess his methods didn't persist because maybe the initial boost he gave or the adrenaline push or whatever it was kind of reverted to the mean. But initially, he inspired his teams, and that kind of inspired me as well to look at 
leadership as a way to get better performance out of people who weren't performing at the levels they could be. Well, what about your parents? Does your leadership style at all reflect your parents, Debbie? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Both my parents taught in the New York City school systems. My dad was a history teacher and it helps account for my love of history. My dad was kind of a strong, silent type. He wasn't very vocal. If you're in a room with a lot of people, he didn't speak up more than other people. But when people, when he did speak up, it was with authority. My mom was a guidance counselor and a reading teacher. And she was much more of a chatterbox. She unfortunately passed away about a year and a half ago. And she was she was kind of one of those people with street wisdom. She always told us what the right way to behave was. She had high levels of expectation. And she kind of had the pulse of the common man. And her politics, both my parents were teacher union Democrats, but they kind of fit in the category of Reagan Democrats in that they were part of that urban ethnic grouping that saw that some of the excesses of the left were a little too much and were not getting good results. And so I think that helped develop my political sense as well. Do you remember your first leadership experience where at the end of it, you said, I understand this is leadership and I'm interested in that? Yeah, I mean, I, there are a couple of things like that. I mean, one is I was the president of my local youth group as a kid. And you know, there were <laughs> stupid teenage disagreements and, uh, you know, you had to get the entire group united. And so I think that was part of it. But I also would point to my earliest days in government. I was still pretty young when I worked on the transition team in the Bush 2000 post after that election. And I went to the Department of Labor. Again, very early 30s. I was deputy head of the transition team and then deputy assistant secretary for policy and really had to try and help shape an agenda, which is kind of a heady thing for you know, somebody in their early 30s to try to figure out how to develop an agenda that the Secretary of Labor and then the President of the United States would want carried out. Sounds like interest in politics early on. When did healthcare kind of factor in as an interest? I was always interested in policy. My first job in Washington was at the American Enterprise Institute. And my first job on Capitol Hill was as the senior domestic policy advisor to the Republican leadership in Congress. And if you look at domestic policy, the vast majority of it is healthcare. I mean, the bulk of the dollars and the bulk of the effect on individuals. And so I learned pretty quickly that you really needed to be up to speed on healthcare. And that was something that definitely was accelerated by the time I was domestic policy advisor in the White House. Healthcare was taking up the majority of my time and FDA alone was taking up a, over a quarter of my time. So I realized that the need to focus and hone in on healthcare was an important one. Well, you're prolific author, four books, over 300 articles in places like the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. When did your interest in writing develop, Tevi? Yeah, I would say the interest in writing dates back to my time at the American Enterprise Institute. I worked for a guy named Ben Wattenberg, who had been a speechwriter for Lyndon Johnson. And the way he came to the attention of the Johnson White House was via his writing. He'd written a best-selling book about demographics that caught their eye. And then later when I worked for him, he did have a weekly column he had multiple books that he put out. He had a monthly column for U.S. News and World Report, which is a big deal at the time. And he was able to shape and influence policy via his writing. I remember when I was working for him, he wrote something about values and how important they were. And President of the United States, Bill Clinton, called him to discuss his interest in values and their shared interest in values in politics. So uh, I realized that writing can help you A, make a name for yourself, but B, also help you influence policy. And so I was determined 
after my time at American Enterprise Institute to get an advanced degree to get a PhD, but also to write as a way to establish myself in the political arena. Your books have been largely about presidencies. The articles you've written have been somewhat broader. Obviously, you spent time at the White House. Is that what influenced your writing about presidencies, or you just happen to be interested in them? I would say neither, actually, in that uh, <laughs> I got my PhD at University of Texas, and I focused on presidential studies. And my mentor there was a woman named Elspeth Rostow, who was an expert in the presidency, but she was also the wife of Walt Rostow, who was the national security advisor to both Kennedy and Johnson. So she had a wealth of information and knowledge and experience with the White House, and I learned a ton about the presidency from her. And the first book I ever wrote, even before I ever worked at the White House, was called Intellectuals and the American Presidency. Then after I served in the White House, I took a writing hiatus for pretty much those 13 years when I was in government. Afterwards, I realized that I was in a unique position of being a trained presidential historian who had also served at high levels in the White House. I mean, the only other person who really fits that bill is someone who is a historian who also worked at the White House at a high level, Arthur Schlesinger. I'm not trying to compare myself to him, but he is a model and a hero of mine. And I realized it gave me a comparative advantage in writing about the presidency, and it's something I have a great interest in. So I think that's what brought it out. And our mutual friend, Don Trigg, actually said to me, after I'd written two books on the presidency, I started writing a third book on disasters. And he said, you know, presidents is your brand. Why don't you get presidents in there? And that's how my third book became presidents and disasters. You've written about social media, these crisis or disasters, uh, intellectuals. How do you select your topics, Debbie? Yeah. So I think a lot about the presidency and I try and think about something that nobody has covered earlier. So with intellectuals, nobody had really written a book about how intellectuals shaped the White House. Uh, with my book about pop culture, nobody had really written a book about what all the various pop culture influences on the president, whether it's reading or TV or movies or theater and now social media. And so nobody had covered that ground before. Nobody had done a book on presidents and disasters. And then my most recent book, Fight House, nobody had written a book about rivalries in the White House across multiple administrations to talk about kind of level set what you see in rivalries in the White House. You might have had someone write about rivalries in the individual administration. Obviously, Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote her book, Team of Rivals, but that was about one administration. And it was actually about cabinet rivals, not about people on the White House staff. So I try and find untrodden ground, which is hard to do because there have been thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of books written about the presidency. But I try and find something that nobody's covered before and then step into the breach. The longitudinal nature of your of your writings and your insights is really interesting. One of your books covered the history of the White House as we know it today. Could you review that for us? I found that to be tremendously interesting. When you think about the presidency, the people who served the president in the 19th century were his cabinet secretaries. They were the presidential aides of the time. And it's really only in the 20th century, mid-20th century, that you start to have a White House staff development. And once you have a White House staff developed, then you have all kinds of rivalries, you have room to bring in intellectuals, and that's, it's the structure of the White House and the changing nature of the White House and how much power the president has, how much staff they have, that allows these new topics to emerge, like rivalries inside the White House or intellectuals serving the president in a direct capacity, not in the cabinet. And so it was necessitated to cover that if I wanted to cover how it came to be that we had all these rivalries in the White House or how it came to be that we had intellectual advisors to a president. 
Some people think that the office of the presidency, the staff and so on, has grown too large. What say you about that, Tebby? Well, I think it's just linked to the size of government. I would agree that government is too large and uh, it covers too many things and spends too much money and uh, spends too much money without bringing in sufficient revenue uh, for that money, which is why we have well over 20 trillion, approaching 30 trillion in debt. But if you are going to have a large presidency and you are going to cover all these things, then you need a president who has tentacles, as it were, who has arms and legs, who can cover the vast gamut of things that presidents do. So you can't have an enormous government and a small White House staff. It just doesn't work. So as long as we're going to have a, an enormous government, we need to have a relatively robust White House staff in order to help the president cover all the things he has to cover. What favorite stories do you have in all your writings, favorite stories about presidents, a really positive decision or one that's maybe not so positive? Oh, there's so many. I mean, you know, I think what I've really become is a storyteller about presidents. But I think I realized early on, especially in writing my second book about presidents and pop culture, there were just things that people didn't know about presidents that would really shape or change the perception that people have of presidents. So, for example, when I learned that Jimmy Carter had watched 480 movies in his single term as president, I knew that was gold. I knew that was something that I could work with and use. Similarly, Woodrow Wilson saw about 250 plays as president. So it just showed that outside of all the various things that they were working on and their huge amounts of responsibilities as president, they also had these outside interests and that really shapes the perception of who they are. So I think, I think that was good. But then sometimes you just find things that are uh, amusing. I wrote a piece for Washingtonian a couple of months ago about presidents and toilets, because there's so many great stories about things that happened in the privy, as it were, including uh, Lyndon Johnson used to bark out orders to his aides while he was sitting on the, the toilet, which, you know, <laughs> not necessarily a management style I would uh, I would advocate, but uh, it's what he used to do. <laughs> well, Shall We Wake the President, of course, is a classic title and very interesting book about crisis. I think you focus on disasters too, but it's crisis. And of course, we've just gone through and are in coronavirus, and that clearly affected the Trump administration. Now it's affecting the Biden administration. Trump didn't really know that was coming, and all of a sudden, wham. How does a president actually react to a crisis like coronavirus? Yeah, so the first thing to know is that how a president responds to the crises on his or her watch will shape their perception for all time and throughout history. So when a crisis comes, a president has to know that it's time to step up and it's a time to perform. Now, the, that is complicated by the fact that a president doesn't go and rescue people who are stuck in a flood and a president doesn't develop the vaccine on his own and a president doesn't you know, stop the floodwaters. I mean, there, there's all kinds of things that I guess we have unrealistic expectations of what the president does or can do. What the president can do is provide leadership and information at key moments and also direct the resources of the United States government in order to allow for an appropriate response. And I think the president needs to look at what they do in that context. So on the Trump administration and the coronavirus, I think that they did some things well and some things poorly. I think, for example, on the communications front and trying to alleviate panic and give accurate, timely information, I think they did a terrible job. I mean, the whole stuff about bleach and uh, all the ridiculous fights about masks and then the hydroxychloroquine. I mean, there are all kinds of things that were unnecessary 
spats or arguments that the Trump administration got involved in that I think hurt both the credibility but also the ability to convey information to the American public. At the same time, I think Operation Warp Speed, which helped develop the vaccine in only nine months, was a huge and groundbreaking achievement. So as with everything in the Trump administration, you have people saying, well, he did A, which is horrible, and other people say he did B, which is great. And it's that contrast that continues to define Trump in every aspect of his presidency. Well, if you're writing a book 10 years from now about a topic that includes Trump, what's his legacy going to be? Will it be Operation Warp Speed? Will it be this poor communications? Or as you're suggesting, will it just continue to be both? The fact is that um, historians, for the most part, determine a president's reputation. Historians generally tend to be a pretty liberal bunch. So I think Trump is going to be trashed in the history books. But in the minds of the American people, I think you're going to have this dichotomy where some people think he was the worst thing and hate everything he did. And other people overlook any bad things he did and think he was fantastic. And it just seemed to me with every aspect of the presidency, that split came into being. And so I think that split's going to continue to define his legacy. So the Biden administration comes in with coronavirus already underway. How does a president think about basically a crisis situation that's been ongoing, is going to continue to exist during his or her presidency? Yeah, it's really hard in this situation because they came in, there was a vaccine, there was a sense that maybe things will start to recede. And things did improve initially uh, because of the vaccine. And then you had Delta and breakthrough cases and it, it seems to have flared up again in a way that I think will be problematic for Biden just in dealing with things, but also for his legacy. So the vaccine is not the easy answer that it was initially. Now, that said, I'm a big fan of the vaccine. I'm an advocate of vaccines. I think if more people took the vaccine, we'd have fewer severe cases of Delta. And uh, so I, you know, I urge people to take the vaccine. But it is true that the emergence of Delta and the breakthrough infections, plus the persistent level of people who are unvaccinated who are getting severe cases and in, in some cases, unfortunately, dying. I think that just makes it harder to deal with. You laid out an episode with Reagan and the press made an issue about that. And I think your point was since then, the press is highly attuned to yeah. uh, is the president awakened in any any given crisis? Can you relate that story for us, Tevi? Yeah, it's, it's a, an incident early on in the Reagan presidency when two U.S. F-14 fighter jets took down two Soviet MiG jets that were uh, run by the Libyan government. And uh, it was kind of a big deal. And you, know, you really didn't have a lot of dogfights between the F-14s and the, and the MiGs. And Ed Meese, who was the counselor to the president, chose not to wake him up initially until he got more information. He did wake him up later that night once they had additional information. But someone in the press asked, did you wake up the president immediately? The answer was no. And uh, there was a lot of pushback against Meese for that. Unfairly, I think, A, because he was correctly trying to get more information, B, because Nancy Reagan had put such a premium on making sure President Reagan got enough time to sleep. In fact, she used to encourage him to take naps and she would say, I want you horizontal, which kind of became a <laughs> joke among White House staffers. But Mises' rivals within the White House staff, including Jim Baker, who's the chief of staff, and Mike Deaver, who's the deputy chief of staff, they used this incident to kind of diminish Mises' power and actually take away national security issues from his portfolio. So I think that was part of the backdrop of what was going on. And then that obviously 
led to every subsequent president being seen through this lens of did you wake him up for this thing? And so even something like Barack Obama winning the Nobel Prize, uh, he was awakened by his staff at something like 5 or 6 a.m. to be told he had won the Nobel Peace Prize. And, and <laughs> to be fair to Obama, he was kind of as befuddled by it by ever, as everyone else, because if you recall, he won it in 2009 when he had just become president. He really hadn't done anything good or ill at the time. And so it was kind of seen as a bit of a joke that the Nobel Committee hated Bush so much and liked Obama's existence so much that they gave him the Nobel Prize for just not being Bush. <laughs> you can't make it up sometimes, yeah. Tevi. What do you think about a situation where Biden has not been president for long? He's got to deal with the coronavirus situation. Obviously, uh, the pullout from Afghanistan has created some tension. When it happens that early in your career in the White House, how do you adjust to that in Biden's case over the next three years or so? Is there anything you can do to try to soften some of these things that happen early in your career? Yeah, it's a good question because there have been presidents who have faced uh, crises or mistakes in early on in their first years. Um, Herbert Hoover, for example, the stock market crashed in his first year. Kennedy had the Bay of Pigs in his first year. So it's not unusual for a president to face a crisis early. Uh, the question is how you deal with it. And Hoover did a pretty poor job in terms of how to communicate about the depression, the worsening depression. And he kept saying the worst is over or we're going to recover. And it just wasn't accurate. Kennedy actually reshaped his national security apparatus and his decision-making process in the wake of Bay of Pigs and uh, I think got better results going forward. So you have to be willing to make adjustments and admit that things went wrong if you're going to be successful going forward. You referred to communications a number of times today. Who was the best communicator among presidents? I think I'd give that one to Ronald Reagan, given that his nickname was The Great Communicator. I remember reading a staff memoir where I talked about Reagan. He always hit his marks. He's a former actor. He knew what to do. He knew how to say the right things to the American people at the right time. And there's a great story where he and Nancy Reagan are in, I believe, the map room while Reagan is recording a spot. And Nancy Reagan keeps saying, do it this way, Ronnie, do it that way. He keeps challenging him on how he's doing it. And he looks at her, being, being a former actor, and said to her, you know, Nancy, I have done this before. <laughs> and she was all kind of angry and left the room. So um, I think Reagan was a great communicator. And the reason I think Reagan was such a great communicator is because he did have that hostility from the press and he knew how to overcome it, how to get directly to the ears and the eyes of the American people in a way that they would see what he was doing. And I think that the need to have to overcome that bias against him, I think really adds to his record in that regard. Tevi, I know you do a lot of speaking to groups about your books and your articles. What kind of questions continue to surface from the groups when you go out? What are they most interested in? Is it the personal stories of the presidents or is it policies? Where do you find they're the most interested? Yeah, it's a good question. Early on in my career, when I was in the White House and I would give a speech, I started talking in great depth about the policies we're, we're pursuing. And I noticed the audiences were a little bored. And then you tell some stories about the president and people just liven up and they got so much more interested. And I've shaped my speaking on that experience going forward. And people just love stories, especially if you have direct personal interaction with the president, which I've been fortunate to have been in the room with or met, I think, all of the last seven presidents, obviously the most experienced with George W. Bush. And I think it's that ability to tell stories about what happened 
that can make things more relatable and more interesting than just reading dry policy. Of your four books, Tevi, which is the one that is your favorite? My favorite is my most recent, Fight House. And I'm not saying that because it's my most recent, but I think because I get better at this as I age and uh, have more practice with it. I think this book is just crackling. Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman Trump. It's just filled with crackling good stories about nasty, nasty things that people did to one another in the White House in the pursuit of more power, more attention, more policy victories. And I just think that every chapter is a winner in that book. So I urge people to go out and buy Fight House because it's, you know, I like all my books, but that one's my favorite. It's absolutely timely and a very good one. I agree with that. What's left on your professional bucket list, Tevi? You certainly accomplished a lot to this point. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. I really like to do two things. I like to write books and do disruptive things in healthcare. So I like to uh, advise companies that are trying to come up with disruptive ways of changing the healthcare system and improving things. And, uh, you know, the extent that uh, it can get paid for that kind of advice, it subsidizes my book writing, which isn't the most lucrative thing in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Tevi, this has been a terrific interview. We absolutely appreciate your time. I have one last question, if I could. And that is for members of our audience who are early stage leaders, early stage of their career, what advice would you have about leadership? My number one advice is read, 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 read. There's so much out there where you can get specific, precise information and experiences in whatever field you are in. I think you should just go out and take advantage of it. And then the other thing is once you read, you also have to absorb. You can't just read things and say, oh, I read that. That's interesting, but not absorb it into your leadership style. So you've got to take what you're, you, the external inputs you're getting, whether it's reading or feedback from the people on your team, you've got to use that and incorporate it in your leadership so you can constantly improve. Because if you just stay where you are, if you just stay inert, if you don't improve things, you're just not going to get better as a leader and you're not going to provide them for the best results. Great advice, Tevi. Thanks again. Enjoyed it very much, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. New episodes will debut every Thursday. Join me in conversations to gain advice and wisdom from CEOs, presidents, and healthcare experts. Healthcare leadership is hard work, but it becomes more manageable as we learn from the remarkable lives and careers of our guests. I'll see you there.